Yo, what is going down, everybody? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wisecracks Movie Podcast. Show me the Wilsons! Sorry, I, I, didn't, I didn't think of one. Yeah, All three of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, what up, everybody? I'm Austin Hayden. I'm joined by the Show Me the Meaning crew. We've got Raymond. Let's get lucky. And we've got <laughs> Ryan. What up, film fans? And joining us this week, we've got a special guest. We've got Thomas Flight. What is going on, Thomas? How's it going, folks? Great to be here. Yeah, pleasure. Thanks for coming. He's a writer, he's a critic, he's a filmmaker, and he makes YouTube videos on film, which, I mean, I'm assuming our audience is probably interested in. So go check out his channel. Uh, you can give him <laughs> some, uh, some excellent video essays. And I think we're going to be referencing one of them today as it kind of tackles the filmmaker that is the uh, writer and director of Bottle Rocket. Um, obviously, we'll give you all the kind of like info to Thomas's website down below in the show notes. You can just click the link or just give him a little Google. And uh, yeah, but he made a really insightful video on the kind of um, aesthetic style of Wes Anderson. So we're going to talk about friggin' Bottle Rocket, which was Wes Anderson's feature debut made in 1996, as I said, written and directed by the man himself, starring the Wilson brothers, all three of them, James Caan and Robert Musgrave. As always, we're going to go around and do first impressions, but before we do, I'm going to give you a little elevator pitch. If you haven't seen this film, first of all, I would say go check out this film. It's probably the sweetest crime caper you're ever going to see. But basically, it's a twee crime caper where a group of bickering, bumbling friends attempt to pull off bigger and bigger robberies to escape the boredom of suburbia. But it's not until they meet a real crime boss that they get into a proper heist, which goes about as well as you'd expect a Wes Anderson heist scene to play out. So, let's go around and do first impressions. What was it like the first time you saw this? What's it been like on repeated viewings? What's it been like, or what was it like the most recent time you revisited it? Let's start with Thomas, since this was your selection. What do you think, brother? Bottle Rocket. The first time I watched this, I think I was very confused. I was like, well, I just didn't <laughs> know what the movie was. I had seen maybe like one or two Wes Anderson movies before I watched it. Um, so I kind of knew what his thing was, but I was just like, incredibly intrigued by the these characters who were like into petty crime in the most serious way imaginable like they're they're min-maxing the productivity of their their petty crime and doing it terribly um and that i was sold i was in i was i was hooked but like i i didn't really know what was going on since then it's been one of my favorites i've watched it a ton of times and every time i come back to it there's just like there's a lot of little things like the humor um is very there's a lot of lines that like I only think I really got how funny they were maybe like the third time I had watched them um and so yeah I've I've it it's it's aged well as I've gone back to it over the last decade like you know repeatedly so it's always it's always a fun movie to go back to cool cool so why did you choose this one as the one to uh to kind of work through of of Wes Anderson's films if there were any of them why this one Wes is one of my favorite directors. Uh, I've done a lot of, of stuff about his work in particular. Um, and one of the things that I find interesting about Wes is he's such a unique director. There's so many different things that about his work that you could talk about. Um, but especially in the YouTube, the visual like discourse about his work, it, stands, it tends to focus specifically on his aesthetics uh, for good reason. You know, that's a huge part of what sets him apart. But I think there's a lot of elements of his filmmaking that are really unique just in how he creates characters and the dialogue. 
Um, and so going, the, Bottle Rocket is the closest thing we have to just like a Wes Anderson movie that's just normal. It doesn't, there's like <laughs> one whip pan in the whole thing. Um, so, you know, we get to see kind of like what is Wes Anderson with all those things we've now come to know, know him for stripped away. Um, and so I think it's a really cool avenue by which to examine like this, this very unique filmmaker at, at his roots, uh, still very unique, but maybe not in the way that gets emphasized now. Yeah. He's almost in some ways trapped by his own success because he's really developed this very specific aesthetic style. And so a lot of people think of him as being concerned with form as opposed to content or style over substance. And, um, it's a bit unfortunate because there is a lot of interesting stuff that he's exploring right and there's always content in form even if what we really celebrate is the kind of formal aspect of his filmmaking style so i think kind of playing through that would be fun because this one is him kind of trying to find his footing in a lot of ways and so it's much more about the narrative the story these friends what they're trying to do and then kind of like the blunders and things that they kind of fall through as he's also playing with a a genre trope of like a a crime caper film you know a heist film so yeah yeah and um, I, I would push quick, back before, a little bit oh real quick before we do that though i do <laughs> want to make sure that everybody knows that we are live right now in the chat so if you want please contribute thoughts comments things like that um we'll be checking that periodically and answering your questions and then of course remember to follow us on twitter at smtm underscore pod raymond push back brother all, all i was going to say is that i would push back on the notion that he's maybe uh, a victim of his own success or trapped by his own success as you said because i'm i'm sure that his financiers would love for him to be less meticulous <laughs> and, and for his movies to, <laughs> to cost less money and take less time i think the the more interesting question uh or not necessarily the more the more interesting question but one thing that i'm, I'm curious your guys thoughts on maybe we can get into it later since we're still doing first thoughts now but how do you think this movie would be different if he were to make this script today with the resources <laughs> at his disposal with, you know it, it, it's yeah. just one of those fun thought experiments that's like yeah, you know he's got he's got the whip pan in there, Thomas. You did a a wonderful video essay on uh, on Bottle Rocket specifically, but uh, what you were kind of alluding to, looking for the 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 seeds or the kernels of his style in this um in this first film, and I I really do wonder is this movie the quote unquote normal Wes Anderson movie just because he hadn't been like let off the leash quite yet? But uh, I'm sure, like I said, we can get into that a little bit later. Awesome. Okay, well let's go back to the kind of first impressions thing, Ryan. What do you think, man? Um, yeah, so this is the second time I saw it. I love Wes Anderson. Like, to me, uh, you know, all of his movies make me happy. Uh, and I will say the first time I saw this movie, I kind of like Thomas said, I was confused or didn't – I didn't love the movie the first time. I, I had seen Rushmore before and I love Rushmore. To me, that's still my favorite of his. Um, and then this definitely feels very much like a first Wes Anderson movie or a first yeah. – or just a first film – um, and to be honest, I don't really love this movie, uh, uh, having gone mm. back. So I might be the dissenting voice here. I, it gets a lot of just kind of like, huh, all right, that was clever kind of laughs. <laughs> it's, I'm never cracking up ever uh, virtually in this movie. And it, and it kind of, it, it, it's one of those, also the reason I say it's a kind of a first movie is I feel like a lot of first time filmmakers, you know, have a, a kind of a high concept or just an interesting take on maybe a genre or something. I think like gross point blank or something. I know that's not a first point uh, first movie, but like, you know, it's just like, Oh, haha, hitmen going, you know, uh, going to 
therapy or something. A 20-year high school reunion or whatever oh, yeah, it is. Yeah, 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 yeah. 20-year high school reunion. Uh, uh, so to me, that feels like this. It, it's just like, you know, idiots that want to be, that want to be, uh, uh, that want to be heist people that want to be robbers. So like, like that's yeah, the book yeah. for the movie. And to me, it doesn't really go beyond that initial joke that much. I mean, you get really into the, it's like a care. It's a weird character study on these bizarre people. Uh, uh, and that's fun to watch. And obviously, you know, you got all the Wes Anderson bells and whistles that he's trying to do. Like you said, though, with a way smaller budget, which is interesting, uh, in hindsight, now that we've seen all of his other movies, but yeah, I, I would say overall, I, my impression of this movie the second time the, the second time I saw it is that it's a you know very impressive first movie for him. I appreciate what he's going for and stuff, but but just taking it on its merit and as a movie by itself, I'm just kind of I'm just I'm lukewarm on it, you know. And um, yeah, so yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. Okay, Raymond. Um. Well, yeah, Ryan, you and I will be locking horns because this is my favorite Wes Anderson. All right, <laughs> let's go, motherfucker. Um, I, I quite, I quite like his stuff, but uh, Austin, you brought up how some folks talk about, you know, is he style over substance? I don't necessarily know about that. I think there are, uh, on occasion, there are sequences in his films where maybe the tail is wagging the dog a little bit, where it seems like he's just trying to cram as much shit into the frame as he possibly can. I don't think it's necessarily to any one film's detriment. Um, you know, Darjeeling sags a little bit for me at parts, but for the most part, I, I like all of his movies. Um, and this one, uh, yeah, it's maybe not his best movie. I think Grand, Grand Budapest or even Royal Tenenbaums uh, still probably holds that distinction in my heart. But this one, th- this is one that I just, I, 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 I laugh so hard at it. It has just this easy charm to it. And I had a, a weird, a weird meeting with it that like my... I think it was my seventh grade science teacher who knew I was really into movies and I was just just kind of casually talking about movies with him one day at the end of class and he said something about how his I asked him what his favorite movie was he goes oh it's got to be Bottle Rocket Wes Anderson and I I had kind of known about Wes Anderson because when you first start getting into movies he and someone like Tim Burton are kind of like the starter pack of auteurs where (laughs) when you're becoming aware of like the fact that someone actually is pulling the strings behind the camera, those are kind of the first two guys that come to mind as having a distinct style where you can go, oh, okay, well, their, their movies all share certain things and they're unlike anyone else's. Maybe you could say something, uh, uh, for, for Quentin Tarantino, probably in the same, uh, in that, that same starter pack. Um, but yeah, it it was, um, uh, I sought it out after having that conversation with him and not only was it kind of like a weird little revelation because I had seen Royal Tenenbaums at that point, but it kind of went over my head a little bit. Um, this one sort of engaged me where I was, where my sense of humor was, and it clicked for me in in a way that, uh, his other films didn't really do quite yet at that age. Uh, and it was also weirdly one of the first times that I thought of a teacher as being like a person with an interior life rather than just someone who reads out of out of a book to me, which I think is the kind of, you know, weird sort of thematic thing that would work its way into like a Rushmore or, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the sort of boundaries that uh, uh, Thomas, you identified in, in your video essay that a lot of his movies are about kids acting like grownups and grownups acting like kids. <laughs> and, and trying to find yeah. the areas where that veil is pierced, I think, is very appropriate uh, for Wes Anderson. But uh, that's that's all I got. 
I mean, my biggest gripe with what you just said is that the starter pack for auteur theory is fucking Godard. Just go straight into La Chinois or Femme Socialisme, <laughs> okay? Like, come on, man. Let's get the heavy you lift know, in here. You know what I mean. I know, I know. I'm kidding. We've I'm got kidding, we've got to do two two hours of podcasting tonight. I'm sure we'll unpack all that later. The first film to watch is Satan Tango. Satan Tango, okay? <laughs> yeah. That's the first film to watch. Austin's, no. Austin's um, always beating the drum for uh, Belatar. I'm sure that... <laughs> At seventh, at seventh grade, picking up some Tarkovsky yeah. or, or Turin horse would have been wonderful for me. Absolutely. Um, okay, so this was my first time seeing Bottle Rocket, Ooh. and I'd heard about Virgin. it for ages. I'd heard so many people say that this was their favorite film because it was kind of a little bit different, and I didn't really know what to expect going in. I thought it was quite funny. I thought it was quite delightful. I thought it was very cute. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about how he sort of plays with maybe disguising melancholy through whimsy, which I think there's there's like this perpetual low stakes throughout this where you never feel like anyone's in serious danger, even though they're committing felonies. And even when uh, when Owen Wilson's character gets arrested, you're kind of like, yeah, but it's kind of fun because, you know, he took one for the team and he has, what's it called? Like, can't remember shit, CRS. Um, that's what the cop gave him. You're like, oh, that's kind of cute and fun. And he's like, yeah, you know, whatever. It's only 24 more months or 23 more months or whatever that I got left. And so it's almost like there's always just these low stakes. But for some reason, it, it, it kind of has a lot of legs. I think it's delightful. It's fun. But here's the thing. Ultimately, like, it's fine. Like it's fine. It is a fun movie. If you want to watch it, you're not going to you're not going to be offended. You're going to smile, you're going to have a lovely time. You're going to put your hand on your partner's leg and be like, "Ooh, this is really sweet," you know? Hey, speak and for yourself. Like, Keep it G-rated, buddy. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, but that's why that's why I said on the leg, and it's gonna be like just a real sweet, like hand holding kind of cute little like. Oh, let's go have some cotton candy after this, and um, talk about how how lovely the stars look tonight. Kind of date night movie, and I think that's fucking fine. But I don't, I don't love this. Like, I don't. It didn't live up to the hype that I think I built up in my own mind. Maybe I was expecting to see a little bit more edge, like. I'm a huge fan of um, The Life Aquatic. I'm a huge fan of Grand Budapest Hotel. And I was kind of hoping for a little bit more quirk. And um, that's okay. That was just my fault, maybe kind of projecting that into it. But it was fine. It was enjoyable. And so um, I think there's interesting things that we can talk about. But uh, yeah, that was kind of like my first impression on it. But of course, before we start peeling things apart, we got to pay the bills. So let's do that. All right, but before we continue, we got to give a shout out to our sponsor for this week's episode, Storyblocks. Look, Storyblocks is the complete stock solution, providing an unlimited library of over 1 million plus royalty-free high-quality video, audio, and images through cost-effective subscription plans. It's the sickest content library out there. I use it all the time in my own work. Wisecrack, we use it all the time in our big old work on our channel. And they've got subscriptions for every budget, so you can stay on budget for your project with affordable subscriptions that scale to meet your needs. And what is more, they're also constantly optimizing and adding assets, including 4K HD footage, After Effects, and Premiere Pro templates, music images, SFX, and more. And again, all royalty free. So if you want to take advantage of this badass content library, please go to storyblocks.com slash wisecrack. That's storyblocks.com slash wisecrack, and you can learn all about what they've got to offer. Once again, storyblocks.com slash wisecrack, or you know, you can click the link down below. 
All right, now back to the show. All right, so let's jump straight into this whole auteur theory thing, all right? So what exactly is it that sets Wes Anderson apart more generally, and then what do we think he does in this film that sort of inches or hints in that direction that really solidifies him as a quote-unquote auteur? Like, what does that mean? Thomas, let's start with you, brother. What does our what does auteur mean? Uh, auteur, I mean, uh, to me, to me, I think about auteur theory. I mean, a lot of people cast it these days as, you know, being this like the director is the author and they're the they have the vision for the film, uh, and they're sort of this dictatorial, uh, and they use that to kind of like almost hype up the director as this like godlike <laughs> character within film. Um, and I don't necessarily like that idea. Uh, you know, the, if we look at some of the the, I haven't read a lot of like uh, the French the du cinema shit. Yeah. First, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but from a lot of the secondary sources that I've read, uh, you know, it, it was a lot more about just like looking at a director's work as a whole and seeing what we could identify across their whole work. And there is an idea of like authorship that the the director is the author of of the film but it's it's much more about like how how what's the story they're telling within their work and less about like the director is god or something like that um so that's how i like to think about it like what is the story that wes anderson is telling as a filmmaker in, instead of like what's the story he's telling in a specific uh film oh cool and that story quote unquote can be stylistic it can be you know thematic there's there's many different elements to that but um there's kind of a story to a, a filmmaker's work on a broader scale uh so that's how i think about auteur theory I, I can get into um you know what i see specifically in west Anderson, yeah do but, no do 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 um so i think specifically as as it applies to uh, Bottle Rocket. One of the one of the reasons I like this movie as an examination of his, the arc of his career is that, as I mentioned previously, like so much of what uh, gets focused on with Wes Anderson is like symmetrical framing, <laughs> very specific color palettes, and you know, production design, really intricate like set building, and um, and almost all of that is like missing from this movie i mean you can see like little clues that maybe some of that's like coming down the pipe but he just he obviously didn't have the resources maybe he hadn't even come up with it um you know it's just it's just not there it's mostly shot kind of like a normal 90s indie movie uh like it's it's good this the cinematography is good but it you know it's there's nothing like extremely inventive or clever visually going on in this movie but there are a lot of like aspects of what we'll see evolve throughout his his filmography thematically uh, and sort of in the types of characters he's exploring and how he's writing dialogue um, and how he's building um, how he's building like how he's structuring stories is already starting to show up here. Like one example um, that I would give would be. Um, you know, one tr kind of little trick that he's doing more often in his newer films is when he has action where there's like a character who like walk behind something and then they kind of pop out somewhere else like True. too soon. <laughs> like it's clear they like shortened, condensed the action. Um, he 
he does that kind of thing almost in this movie between scenes where like they'll ask a question and then they'll be answering the question yeah. somewhere else. You know, like they they are talking about something in this diner and then they're talking about it in the car and the, the conversation is unbroken. Um, and there's almost this sense of like time is already being condensed mm. and, and manipulated in like almost cartoonish ways. Um, so that's one more subtle example. Obviously, like Dignan, I think, as a character uh, is kind of a predecessor to a lot of the other sort of monomaniac, like obsessive, like hyper controlling characters. Uh, characters that come later on in Wes's filmography uh so there's there's a lot of elements there but th those are those are some that, that yeah those those two things kind of go hand in hand to you you bring up that uh that really snappy editing where the conversation is being carried across <clears throat> excuse me uh carried across geography carried across time and I like what that says not just about uh Wes Anderson as a filmmaker and as a filmmaking choice but it does, even if it's, you know, a cinematic expression, it does say something about these characters that the obsessiveness of it that, like, you could believe that they're just having these same conversations over and over and over again and psyching themselves up. Because that's <laughs> that's one of the beautiful things about uh, uh, Owen Wilson in this film is that we talked about this on Nightcrawler, Austin, um, is that he never changes <laughs> like he he gets fixated or obsessed with a single idea and every single scene is him pitching the others on it but he's also kind of pitching himself there's a very clear sense that he's like playing a character even when other characters aren't around he he does his little one-liners and stuff you know on the run from johnny law you know trip to cleveland like he's always performing even when there's no audience and it, and it does give this this incredible sense of like by the end of the movie he seems happy as hell to be in jail because that is the kind of thing that validates this whole romantic notion of of life of crime that he's he's been carrying with him forever um it, it and and i think that is it's very cleverly communicated and the, in the script and in the editing like you said thomas hmm ryan what you think brother well yeah th uh uh you know going back to the auteur theory like th th to me uh, especially when you brought up like Tim Burton and Wes Anderson, you know, like, like they're so specific and detail oriented that I think that, you know, like that, like it's very easy to apply that, uh, that label to them. Cause you can just tell, uh, uh, that so much obsession went into every frame and you kind of forget when you're watching most movies, like how much control or how many choices, you know, somebody can make for every single moment and shot of a movie. And a lot of people, you know, just take it for granted, you know, it's like just shot, reverse shot over the shoulder stuff, boring shit. Whereas Wes Anderson, you can tell every single frame of his thing, not only in the production design, but the way that everything's shot. And then, uh, uh, without going into the script, like, uh, uh, is controlled by him. And what's interesting watching all of his movies is that they all are kind of about people that are super obsessed with details and stuff. You know, Max and Rushmore, he's basically an auteur and is a, he's a play, you know, theater auteur. And then, uh, this, you know, Owen Wilson here is basically an auteur of crime, you know, just detailed, like, like he has a <laughs> 75 year plan. He's going to, he's going to put it through Steve Zizu, you know, film auteur. Anyway, like, like, so it, to me, it's interesting. There's almost kind of a Wes Anderson-y obsessed person uh, in all of his movies. And one thing I like about this mm. film, you know, you were talking about how a lot of the stuff that you know about his movies is kind of stripped away. 
Uh, and I kind of, I can, I, I can see that. I, to, to me, the most Wes Anderson scene in the movie is the beginning in the diner with, with all the, the, all the shit written on the pieces of paper. You know that that looks very much like a lot of stuff we see in Tenenbaums and Rushmore. Just this kind of very homemade aspect that's like very intricate. Um, but I like, to me, Wes Anderson's hitting on all cylinders the, the most when it's his weird ass production design style and all of his bizarre choices but actually telling like a, a true hero's journey story that that feels contained and beginning to end. Cause I, you know, the different strokes for different folks, Raymond, but like to me, grand Budapest, I don't like that movie because it feels so it, it's his style mm. to the extreme. It's so Wes Anderson in the production design and everything else. But it, it, to me, it's like, it's all of that in with, with and then the story is secondary. Right. Where, uh, and then I feel like I haven't seen French Dispatch yet, but, but that's kind of what I get the uh, impression of that movie is like a bunch of vignettes kind of thing. And uh, I, to me, I love that's why I love Rushmore the most, because to me, that's the most contained story, but with his style. And then and then and Bottle Rocket's a good example, too. And then the last movie I think he did that the best on was Moonrise Kingdom. You know, it's just a, a love story between two kids and uh, uh and then there's all this, these insane characters and, you know, all this other, uh, I'll just call it Wes Anderson stuff in quotes, you know, filling up the rest of the movie, <laughs> um, which I love. Um, and, and I was talking to my friend James earlier about this stuff and I hadn't really thought about it, but, uh, uh, but I, I, I think he's right. Like when he started, he started, when he started making animated movies, you know, like, like he was like, oh, he. Uh, it seems like this thing went off in his brain. He's like, oh, I don't. I, I could like everything can be insane in my movies. I, you know, the whole world can. I can manipulate every moment of this, and you know, and you know, to varying results. And uh, uh, and then he also uh, another thing James said. Sorry to ramble on, but the, but he was like, in this movie, it seems like Owen Wilson's character is like the strange one, and then a lot of a lot of people are normal kind of around him right in the film and so it's kind of like he's this one like wacky person in a in a relatively normal space whereas you know Rushmore's like up max and then everyone else is you know relatively normal and then yeah as, as the movies go on it's like you know the royal tenum bombs it's like everyone in that family is crazy but then outside world's a little bit normal so it's like it's almost like it's to the point now where i i, I just think that's an interesting dynamic of his of his films if you think about it like that where it's well, what are you, sure. you going to say, Ray? Ro Royal Tenenbaums. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, I, I agree with you that dysfunction kind of becomes contagious in a lot of his movies. But I think he's one of the things he's so great at, like when his scripts are really clicking, is figuring out a way to make a straight man. Like I would argue that in Royal Tenenbaums, Gene Hackman is kind of the is kind of the most grounded yeah. character in the film. But he's still such a miserable old bastard that, like, he still he still makes sense within the the style or the the rhythm, the the frequency of the movie, however you want to define it. Um, and I I do think that he's he's at his best in those early films, the those first three, um, where uh, yeah, it it seems like there's obviously in Rushmore and Tenenbaums, he gets more and more into his style and stuff like that. But there's still a very clear sense of, of what's grounding them. Um, like I said, I like a lot of his other movies, but uh, I don't think, I think that that first three is kind of unimpeachable, at least for me. What do we think? So one way of thinking, I guess, or maybe we'll say one aspect of looking at formal aesthetics is as a container in which the content is 
enabled to move right so when we look at his specific aesthetic choices even in their kind of germinal stage in a film like bottle rocket what is he doing like what is the frame that he's setting or what are the structures that he's setting in dialogue in set design in uh, costuming uh, in the entire mise-en-scene what are the structures that he's setting up to show or to highlight or to open an aperture onto certain aspects of the human experience in short i guess what i'm asking is is what is his unique take on what it means to be human um, in the various stories that he tells, whether it's uh, an obsessed diver who wants to get revenge um, for his murdered friend, or whether it's uh, in this someone who's obsessed about, you know, becoming a criminal, um, is it uh, is it that he is highlighting, you know, kind of middle class suburban malaise? Is it that he is exploring with the kind of madness that it takes to be someone who accomplishes anything? And maybe it's sort of like autobiographical in some ways because he kind of sees himself as a master tinkerer who is obsessed you know like what what is the what is the aperture that is opened onto humanity that is particular to wes anderson and then of course this film most notable tell us thomas (laughs) 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 i'll uh I'll, i'll so one thing i've been thinking about uh revisiting bottle rocket now coming off of the French Dispatch, uh, which I won't spoil, but which I loved, uh, and which kind of takes his his filmography to, uh, I think, an inc- like, I'm with you guys to some extent in that I, there's a certain trajectory of, like, complexity in Wes Anderson films that almost begins to override some of the, the story um, in a certain way and makes things a little bit less mm-hmm. emotionally accessible at times. Mm. Um, when I first saw the, the uh, uh, Grand Budapest Hotel, I didn't love it. I've come to, I've come to love it more the more I've rewatched it, um, but I didn't love it at first. Uh, and his, but with the French Dispatch, there's almost a tip. We, you, he almost crosses a tipping point and goes into this territory of just absurdity that kind of almost sheds a new light on his work but anyway so i'm coming off of that and that's kind of helping recontextualize some of what i'm looking at interesting bottle rocket now and one of one of the things that was really apparent to me this time watching it that i hadn't really thought about much was kind of this idea and this theme of like difficulty expressing emotion and just emotional avoidance Mm. um and i loved what you said earlier austin about like this kind of pervasive underlying melancholy um because that really like exists in the film it opens with anthony like coming out of a a a mental hospital and so he's obviously dealing with like some pretty intense situation and there's there's a lot of turmoil between dignan and anthony in their past that like isn't that they don't they never really deal with they never really talk about when it does come up it's it's very surface level they never get to the root of that and um and they they the characters are constantly like kind of dealing with things on this very artificial level uh but there's insinuation of like actual emotion underneath that they're dealing with i don't think it's that i don't think it's that the film itself is devoid of emotion it is to some extent but like he's Wes is hinting at emotion underneath that these characters are dealing with, but they can never themselves fully express it, which is why we never exactly get it on screen. Now, 
to connect this to what your question was, which was how does this relate to sort of the formal style? Um, there's there's way in later films we see him actually kind of like drowning emotion in style and then there's these moments where i think it kind of like pokes through where he like pulls back a curtain and kind of hits you with it and there's a there's a contrast to that that i think is kind of unique and powerful but in this film um you can see it a little bit more in how even he the way he constructs certain lines of dialogue um there's like one there's that line where uh, they're standing at the gas station and Anthony has found out about the fact that Mr. Henry's, the the crew that he's been hearing about all this time was actually just a lawn <laughs> landscapers. Company, yeah. Not like a, yeah, yeah. They don't just and, mow lawns. And, uh, it's landscape. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, he, he's asking Dignan, like, why don't you just go back to Mr. Henry? And Dignan's like, well, because we're fugitives, like we're, mm. we're on the run right now. But also, I, but also because I got fired, uh, like that's the real reason. But he's kind of burying the lead, like behind this narrative that he's constructed of like we're fugitives on the run. You know, that's the reason in my mind why I'm not going back to Mr. Henry. But like they're buried at the end of the sentence is like the reality of the situation, which is you know I I I got fired and you know I had to do the lawn care. Somebody has to, even if it's a front, he, he even says then like, just because it's a front doesn't mean, you know, doesn't mean nobody has to do yeah, the work. Yeah. Like we still have to do the lawn care. Yeah. Um, and there's another, there's another instance, uh, I can't remember the specific line, but there's another instance that I thought of watching that where like the emotional content of the line is like really buried behind this like artifice, uh, this like narrative that. Uh, the characters are kind of trying to construct for themselves and it it plays as a joke it's like the way he's constructing those lines is just a funny way to do it but i think it also it also speaks to these characters like struggle with like the emotional reality of their life not lining up with this like narrative that they've constructed in one sense like this together. type of repression emotional repression um is kind of funny when it's done well and i think that's the idea here is that we all are in on the joke that oh he can't actually admit to his vulnerabilities or he can't open himself up and so we are constantly aware of his inability to confront the quote-unquote real um, we might say. And so because of that, it creates this constant tension, which kind of creates like a little bit of discomfort, but it's a, a very whimsical discomfort. And I think the reason maybe that like Owen Wilson is so great living at that surface level is because he's one, he's really just always kind of like chill. Um, but two, he's got like this bumbling discomfort in his body that is always like, oh, this human is just not very comfortable. You know, and so it kind of it translates and, and whether or not that's true, it just that's how it kind of translates on screen. So it works really well, I think, to kind of like get at that. Sorry, Raymond. Go ahead. brother. Oh, no, no. I was just going to say, you know, you brought up the the notion of uh, his evolving aesthetic and what hints to his auteurist sensibilities, even at this early stage. Um, listening to the commentary, he and Owen Wilson, it's not very insightful because a lot of the time they're just trying to remember it because they, they did the commentary <laughs> probably 10 or 12 years after they actually shot it. Um, but at one point in it, they're, they're remarking on like just a white polo shirt that Owen Wilson's wearing. And he says something about like, yeah, you know, I never really felt comfortable wearing that shirt. And Wes Anderson says like, <laughs> well, yeah, that's, but that's why I wanted you to wear it. Remember? Like we talked about how, 
you're a guy that's supposed to not be really comfortable in your skin and stuff like that. And it, it, it in a, a commentary that often gets lost in them just sort of watching the movie, <laughs> um, it was a, a rare moment of, uh, of genuine insight into the character and, and also kind of uh, uh, goes back to that notion I was saying about him him constantly performing you know he has the maybe uh folks would call it main character syndrome like he's he very much thinks he's in a movie about his own exploits it's my favorite moment in the entire movie it makes me laugh so hard is when he's trying to steal the car and he goes up with a coat hanger and he like tries the doorknob <laughs> then he like just taps the coat hanger against the wall against the window almost like a magic wand he just kind of like ineffectually scrapes it against the car window and then he tries the doorknob again thinking like i don't know did that do it i've never done this before and there there are all these moments like like you guys pointed out and then there's there's another moment when he's talking to uh Luke Wilson where he says like you know, even even if I uh, uh, even if I could fix this car, I don't have the right tools to fix it, or something to that effect. It's like it, he's always just he's always just one degree away from competent, and he wants everyone to know that he knows because he he doesn't want you to think that he's not competent. It's just it, it's mm. once again it's a poor craftsman that blames his tools, and he's always he's always blaming his tools, even down to. Kumar just sitting down in the middle of the safe cracking scene and he comes and what happened man and he goes you know oh, I don't know I lost my touch and he's like well did you ever have a touch to lose <laughs> meanwhile downstairs he's throwing a smoke bomb setting off the fire alarm uh, it, like he is 100% the reason that everything goes tits up but as soon as he can shift blame over to Kumar it's no we got stuck with a bad safe cracker otherwise this would have gone off without a hitch <laughs> um uh. But somehow, somehow, in spite of that, he has this unimpeachable, like, optimistic, like, sincerity. Like, the, like, he just, he, like, you, you mentioned earlier, Austin, I think, even in jail, he's just like, uh, he's just happy to be there. Yeah. It's like, it's part, it's part of the like, romance. He's never phased by, <laughs> by any of this. Well, it's going because wrong, he's, he's, I, he's fulfilling the fantasy of being a criminal. Yeah. And being in yes, jail yeah. is the payoff in the reward because now you get a little bit more street cred. So just imagine <laughs> how obnoxious he's going to be when he gets out. He's the real deal. He's going to. Yeah, when I was when I was in the pen, and and it is that <laughs> when thing when when he runs back into the into Hinkley cold storage and he goes, "They'll never catch me because I'm fucking innocent." And it's it, <laughs> it is just yeah, yeah. that that notion that there there is this really like. Like you said, Thomas, there is a beautiful innocence to him. There's a naivete, and it is—it's kind mm. of a character that can't lose because either they pull off the heist of a lifetime in his mind, and and uh, they return to Mister Henry as conquering heroes, or he goes to jail and confirms uh, what he's been trying to convince everyone all along that no, I I'm the real deal. I'm a hardened criminal, baby. The um yeah. the theme that you guys were talking about the uh, just how these characters kind of are i don't know emotionally stunted or or able or not able to express themselves i think obviously is shown uh quite literally in like luke wilson's love affair with this person he can't communicate with at all right so it's kind of um which i just think is a uh, uh is interesting so. the he's he's playing with um he's already playing with like l- using languages and like slightly uh, interesting ways in this movie where he ha- has just like Spanish that that 
is being translated not with subtitles but with like a uh, an actual who's doing dishes who's in the middle of something (laughs) going back and forth doing dishes and that's like a real precursor to stuff he does in uh, like isle of dogs by have you know instead of using subtitles having like actual translators on screen and stuff like that um so so that stuff is is like kind of setting or planting little seeds i think for things that he does a little more fully uh later on but yeah literally literally unable to like she literally can't say i love you to uh (laughs) to uh anthony um one of the things i thought that was really cool if i can just kind of i don't know if you kind of already wrapped up this discussion but i love the idea of thinking that okay so if the character's emotional depth isn't presented or expressed or it's inaccessible i love the idea of thinking of that that emotional depth of the author being wes anderson himself comes out in the aesthetic um i was thinking about that as as thomas was kind of describing and i and i don't even know how that would work but it's almost like like the formal philosophical term would be like an act of sublimation Right. Where it's sort of like you take your vital energy and you infuse it into these beautiful landscapes, you know, or libidinal energy or something like that. And I kind of wonder if there's like and I'm not trying to like eroticize like this really cute twee crime caper thing. But I wonder if there's like this really intense libidinal energy in all of the kind of formal elements of Wes Anderson's output because the characters don't really get to the depth of their own inner desires but the fucking sets and the um kind of like superficial response to that is very heightened and so maybe that's the way it comes out does that make sense so rather than like going in or deep it's like projected out and around and i think there's it's are you saying wes anderson fucks his production designer (laughs) and so oh boy i think i I think one of the hallmarks of his style that is uh fully formed in this film that we haven't mentioned is actually his his propensity for for oh yeah yeah we should talk about that um and and you bringing that up austin made me think of that because he he is someone who quite frequently will um you know there there may be the the heights of passion at certain points in this movie when luke wilson runs back to inez but would that would that have the same effect without you know those those great needle drops and and that was one of the one of the other things on the commentary that the two of them just constantly are pointing out it's just they'll they'll just not talk for minutes at a time and then a, a song will start playing and Owen Wilson will go oh, that's really yeah yeah <laughs> just and then they'll just be quiet for longer so they can listen to it but. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm curious because uh, we're talking about his auteurist sensibilities. That's something that really seems like, you know, despite the budget in this, he was able to uh, to afford some uh, some very emotive uh, soundtrack. I I yeah, I definitely noticed the needle drops watching it this time, and that kind of goes back to my thing about like like first you know uh, it, you can tell it's a first time filmmaker or something. Not to say that all needle drops are are amateur but it definitely I'm like a, a scene will start then it'll go into slow motion and it'll be this amazing song that I love yeah. and I'm like wow I love this scene or do I just love you yeah, know, the yeah, clash yeah. you know uh, like, like is this Wes Anderson or he's yeah. fucking cheating right now like like so Thomas yeah. you, you, you kind of break down the form a lot and stuff what's your take on that kind of stuff where it's like yeah like it, it almost seems like it's all of the work is being done by the song. Very mm. little is being done by the thing, but it's, it kind of works. So you're like, fuck it. This is a music video now. Yeah. I mean, the movie definitely wouldn't be the same if 2000 Man wasn't playing right. while 
you know, he was running back in, or running from the cops at the end. Uh, so, like, there's definitely some heavy lifting happening there. I don't know. I mean, yeah, whether whether or not it's he 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 blew all his he must have blown all his budget on the needle <laughs> drops and James yeah, right. uh, Jimmy Con. James Con, whom we haven't movie. talked about yeah. yet. James Con, <laughs> wonderful in the film. I'm so okay with this, by the way. I'm okay with needle drops. You know, whatever whatever tools are at the artist's disposal, just fucking use them, you know? I'm cool with that. I don't care. You're Even fine if- with hearing Gimme Shelter in every single Martin Scorsese movie for six minutes? Do it. <laughs> Do it. Everyone? I don't mind. Um, I'm, I mean, this this comes back to the, the question of, you know, what constitutes auteurism. And this is something that you, you sort of touched on in um, uh, an essay about... Uh, Speaking of Scorsese, uh, Thomas did uh, an essay, if you guys haven't seen it, about the sort of cinema versus Marvel Mm. kerfuffle that Scorsese always sort of finds himself in the center of. Uh, And there was a wonderful clip in that that you cited of Greta Gerwig saying uh, that she she can't necessarily define what cinema is, but she she knows Mm. it when she sees it. And I, I think you could kind of say the same thing about uh, auteurism that you can, yeah, or pornography, um, uh, that, uh, uh, you know, we, we could throw out a literal definition of, you know, it is the sense that uh, the director serves as the author of a film, period, whatever. But that doesn't really communicate um, what, uh, what a real auteurist statement can communicate, even in the space of a single frame or a single shot. And, uh, you know, another one of the things in this movie, at the very end of it, uh, we get one of those very romantic slow motion shots. I think the only one in this movie, if I'm not mistaken, that, that Wes Anderson's so fond of. The one that comes to mind for me, uh, or at least my favorite probably in his filmography, is in, um, in Royal Tenenbaums, where... Uh, uh, Margot steps off the bus and Richie's sitting on the bench and they have those sort of just slow panometric uh, or planometric kind of push-ins on each of them just reversing on each other and there's like a line of marines <laughs> walking through the back of the shot and it's just it's just so clean and so precise and it's set to uh, I think uh, it's it's Nico singing um, these days um, but, uh, yeah, you, you get a little touch of that with Dignan at the end of this. And I, I, I think it is, it is a question of maybe he blew the money on James Caan. Maybe he blew the money on the soundtrack. But, uh, one of the things I'm very grateful for is that not a lot of filmmakers get the opportunity to make their first movie in a studio system with those kind of resources, um, you know, and the kind of creative freedom that he was clearly given with this. So I, I think there is... A version of Bottle Rocket. For example, I was reading uh, the, the the Wes Anderson collection, the Matt Zoller Sites book, and his interview with Wes Anderson for this movie, he was talking about how the short film was never intended to be a short film. Mm. It was, in his mind, they were just going to shoot a scene when they had the money to shoot a scene, and eventually they'd have a finished movie. And, you know, once they had a, a, a 10 or 12 minute version of that, it got into Sundance. That helped the ball get rolling. James L. Brooks got on board, and then they were able to get the feature Holly made Flat. with the proper budget. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, so there, there is that that hypothetical that I posed earlier that, you know, what would this movie be like if he made it today with the resources at his disposal? But more realistically, the, the version of this movie that we could have gotten, I think, would still probably be interesting and funny, but uh, uh, far less auspicious and probably not the the same kind of springboard that uh, that this movie created hmm. for. Um, what do we think as, I mean, since we're going to do a 
and a little bonus episode on feature debuts. Um, let's kind of chat a little bit about the idea of um, this being a feature directorial debut. Um, is it a successful one? Does this kind of like land in one of the better debuts that's out there in recent memory? What do we think? Well, it's financially a huge, I mean, it didn't make any money at the box office. So in that sense, yeah. it was a huge failure. But then it's on Martin Scorsese's like top 10 movies of the <laughs> 90s and stuff. So I think yeah, at the end of the it. day, Wes Anderson's probably like, I don't care if it made money. <laughs> it, has a, it has a place in pop culture. And and I don't think he has any gripes about his career. No, of course not. Either. He, <laughs> he, he was able to work things out for certain. Um, I think this is great. Speaking of James Caan, we, we haven't really been able to talk too much about him, but another one of my favorite film debuts is Michael Mann. Oh, Steve. nice. Uh, and, and that actually shares some DNA with this one. James Caan plays a hmm. safe cracker in that. Um, and I, I can't recommend it highly enough, folks. If you haven't seen Thief, it's uh, it's marvelous. It's my favorite Michael Mann movie. Hmm. I, I think he he did it best the first time out of the gate. Have you heard the 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 uh, Wes Anderson quote where he says, "My entire filmography is just remaking Heat." I have I have heard that. I um <laughs> I want to don't steal this. I want to do a video. About That's that. awesome. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm I'm trying to think that. That rings a bell. That was Wes Anderson, right? Be- I can't. I because can't even Christopher find Nolan. Somebody, he said it somewhere. Christopher Nolan is also a, a a big Michael Mann acolyte, and he he even said on the press tour for Dark Knight that he was like, "Oh yeah, I just wanted to remake Heat." Um, maybe it is. I think Nolan, it might be I Nolan. Hallucinated uh, it in my in my. But head. I, I that would yeah. kind of that would make more sense to me. Actually, it does ring a bell though uh, because I feel like I remember reading an interview with Wes Anderson where he name dropped Michael Mann, and it was just like. Maybe it was Michael Mann or someone else, but I think I do remember something where I was kind of taken aback, like, oh, I don't know that I see that in your work, but, you know, whatever gets yeah, it done. Real quick, I just want to say Matthew in the chat was just saying that Raymond's nailing the impressions over the last couple of episodes, so... Yeah, that Owen Wilson was scary, dude. <laughs> yeah, dude. <laughs> it was That's pretty freaking good. Owen so, yeah, thanks, um, I tried. Well, so what do we think makes a makes this a successful debut? Is it just that, okay, it launched his career? Or I'm talking about, like, from the filmmaking chops side of things like do we see control do we see like a bold vision do we see you know the things like a confidence in direction in this film absolutely yeah it may not be as distinct or as bold as his movies going forward but this definitely feels like a a singular vision you know and this this goes back to like he he talks about how originally in this movie they were going to do a much more straightforward crime film with like gunfights and all this stuff and then he said like but then we realized like I have no idea how to shoot a gunfight and it wouldn't be it would be bad to watch so we were like I don't know let's just let's just not do that what's what's it, the uncrime it's funny you film say that, that because when I think about Wes Anderson some, he has some of my favorite gunfights because it's shot in such an awkward way with people behaving you know like in Steve Zizou on the boat and stuff when it's just yeah. like Ugh! <laughs> yeah, it's very it's very naked gun. How they'll kind of yeah, like pop like, out. Like, pop I out like that. <laughs> I like that it, it feels ridiculous. You know, which I do think is a big part of his movies. Just that even the most solemn, I, I would say, like Royal Tenenbaums. You know, is a is a melancholy, more serious movie than his others. But it's it just it's such a, a heightened level of reality, which I think he established in this movie. You know, so to your point, to your question, Austin, I think that that, which is a hard thing to do, it's a tightrope uh, that he's walking for, yeah. you know, 90 minutes here. 
and he does it relatively successfully. And then he just uh, he gets more and more pro at it as he goes on. I mean, Rushmore to me is a almost perfect film. And and yeah, like 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 I love that about his movies is that I know that when I'm going in, it's 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 feels like reality, but it's so not. <laughs> and and and, yeah. and it's great. He does that <laughs> in a good way. Thomas, I'm I'm curious your thoughts. Uh, in your uh, one of your video essays, you you talked about the action in Wes Anderson films and how there is a weird kind of evolution, but not necessarily towards seriousness. Kind of tying it back into the the silliness of it all, the like the the weird little scraps in the in the train car in Grand Budapest or the the cloud of smoke in Isle of Dogs. How do you think that Wes Anderson has evolved not only as a stylist, but as a technician, as a, as a filmmaker, if, if there is a distinction there for you? I think uh, we definitely see a trend towards like increasing levels of abstraction that I think already kind of existed, exists in this film. Um, you know, I think of the, there's that moment where like they're making plans and Bob yes, keeps touching I love the gun scene. and Dignan is getting like increasingly infuriated and, and he's like, he, he's like, I'm out. He's like, Bob's out. You're out. I, I think I'm out too. And then they walk off into the kitchen and they say like two lines, you know, kind of off camera. One of them's a joke about how an asshole like Bob get such a nice kitchen. <laughs> and then they walk back in and Dignan's all like, oh, I'm sorry, like blah, blah, blah. And he like, he takes this whole like emotional arc of like, I'm mad, I'm upset, you know, and then, oh, well, you know, and abstracts it down to just like a small moment that happens like kind of off camera in the corner. Um, and that kind of abstraction of conflict and uh, even like, story beats i think is something that he just does increasingly stylistically throughout his career um so you know we see even more and more stylized forms of like here's a beat that we're expecting to have in this this like story we we all know as filmgoers that like this this beat is coming it has to happen happen functionally for the the like story to progress and he's kind of discovered the secret that like you can sort of like cheat by just like ab abstractly like condensing the beat down to the smallest you know necessary ingredients and popping that in there and then moving on um and uh and i think he he does that in in really interesting and clever ways sometimes um but yeah i love the evolution of of the violence especially like uh you know uh, as Ryan was saying, everybody popping out like the the French dispatch. Oh, is perfect! Oh, sure. So far, which is just more <laughs> random firing, you know, into everybody just sh stands and shoots at each other at once. Uh, and yeah, that it's that's like an absurd abstraction of like the action, the climactic action scene. It's like it doesn't it doesn't the way he portrays it, it doesn't actually really mean anything on screen. It's like incoherent basically. But like we're all so used to like the stories that we're consuming at this point that like most action on screen in a lot of movies is essentially incoherent anyway, even the ones that are like trying to be more coherent. And so I love that the 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 fact that he's just full send, like, I'm not going to pretend to make it realistic. I'm just going to fully lean into the abstraction and the fact that, like, this is a story I'm telling you. Like, this, and this is the part where they come out with guns and they shoot at each other. And then 
the, and then the story moves on, you know, and maybe like somebody got hurt, but usually probably nobody. Right, exactly. You know, none of the main no, characters no one got really hurt. gets hurt, and uh, no one really gets mad. People just get a little bit injured or a little bit annoyed, and it's kind of it's always it's always yeah, very their feelings cutesy. get hurt. Yeah, times. exactly. That, that's that's definitely something that elevates the humor in this. I, I'm I, I don't know if all of you have seen the short film. I think it's on YouTube. I, I highly recommend if uh, if you're listening to this, check it out. Um, if you're a fan of this movie. But uh, to Thomas's point, in in the short, they they don't even show the robbery. the The robbery, or the book, the bookstore robbery, is phenomenal in the feature. But in the short film, it's them getting ready to go do it, and then it cuts to them at like a burger joint, and they're all joking about how they completely traumatized <laughs> these two guys, and they're like recounting. And then I said, and then he said. And it is just one of those things where, like, it almost makes it funnier that you don't see how nonchalant the victims yeah. are of the thing. Like, once again, I love the the robbery scene in the feature, but it's that it's that classic comedy thing of like comedy is just you know people caring too much about too little or vice versa. And in in the robbery, it's like, well, these robber these robbers are very lethargic, and also the victims are just kind of blasé about the whole thing to the point where like one of my favorite lines in the movie is when luke wilson finds the guy in the aisle and he goes you're supposed yeah, to be yeah, in yeah. science or whatever <laughs> yeah, yeah like why does it how can that possibly <laughs> yeah, matter right now um but yeah it is it, it to thomas's point it's it's one of those things that really within the vernacular of his films really really heightens the comedy all right, now before we wrap up and get out of here, um, I do want to just let people know that normally we would go into a mailbag portion of the podcast as we wrap up, but we're going to be doing a mailbag episode in two weeks, I believe. So send us your emails, send us your voicemails. Remember, you can call us at 1-213-534-8807. That's 1-213-534-8807. Or you can email us movies at wisecrack.co. That's movies at wisecrack.co. Send us your thoughts on any of the films whether it's on Wes Anderson Bottle Rocket or anything we've discussed in the past couple months whatever and we're going to kind of bang out as many as we can um, in that in that episode but um, just to kind of like close up just really quickly what what are top what's top tier Wes Anderson obviously we've talked about some of our favorites but why don't we just real quick as quickly as we can rapid fire go through his filmography what's top tier all right Bottle Rocket what do we think just shout it out mid tier Bottle Rocket, it, it's not the best, but it's it's like my okay. second or third favorite. Raymond, top top top, top, it's top, 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 tier. top, 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 <laughs> the pinnacle of the pyramid. Okay, top Rushmore, tier. top tier. Hey, all you true crime fans, this is Mike Ferguson, and this is Mike Morph, and we'd like to invite you to listen to our podcast, Criminology. Launched in 2017, we've covered a variety of strange cases from murders to missing persons. Some of the cases are ones you may not have heard of. Other cases we cover are some of the most historic in true crime. There are 200 episodes of Criminology available to binge on right now, and new episodes come out every Saturday night. Subscribe to Criminology today, wherever you listen to your podcast. Uh, Mid tier, Royal Tenenbaums. Uh, yeah, top. it's controversial, but Tenenbaums like, is like my number two. I love Tenenbaums. I'm also gonna mid tier. Mid tier, okay. Yeah. What are you, oh, Austin? Yeah. What, are you, uh, what are you, Austin? I'm, Royal Tenenbaums is mid tier. Rushmore is top tier. Right, cut his Bottle mic. Rocket is mid bottom tier. Um, what about Life Aquatic? 
for me, that's either mid or low tier. Personal preference here, mm. but that's I, I don't love that movie. Life Aquatic and Darjeeling are both lower middle class for me. Ugh. Thomas, we're gonna, that's going mid tier. Not everything will be. We just we got through all the mid mid. Yeah, so. Life Aquatic is top for me. Uh, Darjeeling for me is mid tier. Ryan, I, I honestly love that movie. I would, I'm going to go top, but that's that. I understand not everyone loving that. It's it's not for everybody. Darjeeling's top tier. Hell yeah. Okay. Oh yeah, Thomas. Yeah, yes. Fantastic. We gotta Mr. have you back next week. Fantastic we'll talk to Mr. Fox. <laughs> Fantastic Dude, Mr. Fox. I love the shit out of all all his animated movies. I, I go top tier for Fantastic Mr. Fox. I want to see more of that shit. Low to, low top. Okay. I, I like That's Mr. Fair. Fox a lot. And on behalf of last week's guest, Karsten, uh, we were uh, we we gotta put that top tier. <laughs> Otherwise he'll he'll burn the podcast down. Agreed. I'll never I, I I will never forgive him for putting Moonrise low tier though. Okay, yeah. That's what <laughs> that I'm was, ask. That Moonrise. was his very bottom. Moonrise yeah. He put that like number ten. Moonrise Kingdom. Moonrise Kingdom is top tier. That's top my favorite. Top tier, baby. Yeah. Yeah, I love that one. Okay, yeah, I'm gonna go I'm gonna go bottom top for me, but yeah. Uh what about Grand Budapest? Are there only two tier are there only top and middle tier? Uh, I put so Live Aquatic we... on low and I also yeah, he put Grand Budapest. I'm also gonna put Grand Budapest on low. <laughs> uh Isle of Dogs is low is a low tier for me. That's Ooh. probably mid for me. I Isle of Dogs is probably bottom of the list for me, but Grand Budapest I think is in top top three or four. Yeah. Um uh what about French Dispatch, Thomas, since you're the only one that's seen it, I think, right? I've seen it. Oh, you have oh. too. Okay, so R- Raymond and Thomas, what do we think? Top, top tier. I, I I loved it. I was actually kind of girding myself for a, a bit of a slog, but I was surprised at how fucking funny it was. Hell yeah! All right, that's good to hear. It's, okay, it's, cool. It's one of his funniest in a while, but it's also like, yeah, I don't know. It, it it's just more. It's like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is That's it Wes Anderson it. doing a parody of himself? Is it like when Terrence Malick decided to do like To the Wonder and stuff like that? And it's like just on oh, steroids? No. He goes, so like, okay, uh, not to get too into the weeds right we got, now, but we got, like, we got 20 seconds. Give us your 20 second synopsis of it, and then we got to run. Grand Budapest, there's like aspect ratios changing for a reason this is just like color aspect ratio it's just all over the place like it's sensory real quick five seconds but my friend james said it was like if max (laughs) from rushmore was directing the movies now (laughs) (laughs) and that either sounds great to you or it sounds amazing to me i can't wait to see that i will say to thomas's point there there are times in french dispatch where there is an image on the right side of the screen a completely separate image on the left side of the screen and then there are subtitles on the top and the bottom of the screen and it is like i think deliberately designed to just overwhelm Incredible. you so it's 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 definitely one that if if you're not turned off by it will probably demand a second viewing <laughs> all right everybody let us know your thoughts if you haven't seen or if you have seen it obviously you can email us and call us and talk about bottle rocket whatever you want we're going to tackle that in the next couple weeks again that's one two one three five three four eight eight zero seven or movies at wisecrack.co we got to get out of here where can people find you on the internet thomas YouTube.com slash Thomas Flight. I'm Thomas Flight pretty much everywhere. Google me. Find me. Easy as. What about you, Ryan? Uh, Ryan Shorts on all the platforms. Making comedy videos whenever I can and have time. Thank you. So, Wheat and Raymond. You can find me at Crematoria on Twitter and Letterboxd. And I just want to shout out, Thomas did a series of videos on Parasite. One of my favorite movies. And 
some phenomenal work. Now that's an auteur. Thank you so much. Yeah, every single one of those essays uh, peels apart the movie in a totally different, uh, a, a totally new way, a totally new perspective. And uh, if you haven't seen Thomas's videos, it's a, a great place to start. I highly recommend those Parasite vids. Amazing. And I'm Austin Hayden. You can find me on Twitter, Insta, all that stuff. And I saw Titan last night at the Sydney Film Festival, and I'm really disappointed yeah. that I didn't get to talk about it on this podcast because I have fucking thoughts. So please that email us. Come on, come on the next, that come on the next episode of Talking Titan. We've been do doing it. it for the past uh, 25 weeks. And then email, <laughs> email us about Titan, yeah. and I will Michael, ta- Michael. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's just fucking talk about this movie for the rest of the year, okay? Um, Titan was transcendent. (laughs) We got to get out of here. Ryan, send us out of here, brother. Goodbye from Hollywood, California. This has been show.